as we look at Romans 5, we're looking into the throne room of heaven. Revelation 5, I keep saying Romans, I apologize. Revelation 5. And in verse, uh, the first part of this chapter, then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and this is God the Father. Don't forget, God's in three persons. We see the three persons in heaven in Revelation. We see them mentioned in the Bible in the same verse, such as at Jesus' baptism. Jesus in the water being baptized. The Father speaks and the Spirit descends like a dove. So I see in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and without, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Now, this happens in time. This doesn't happen in a repeated manner. Some other things in Revelation, we get glimpses of heaven and we understand, like the, the, the four uh, uh, angels are flying around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We see that in Isaiah 6. We see it in Revelation. That's been going on a 1,000 years. It's been going on 2,000 years since then, it's going on today, it'll be going on tomorrow, but keep going on. But this is a timed event. This is opening up at the end of time. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And look at verse uh, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. Seven being a number of divinity. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they began to worship the one on the throne. Here's, here's, here's what I want you to see there. That there is a scheduled end. He's about to open the scroll and the prophecies of the end are about to be revealed. And as the lamb takes the scroll and starts to break the seals... Heaven falls out into worship. There is worship in heaven over the coming conquering of this planet by our king. Um, I love in this, these verses, I don't want you to miss it. John is told the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. Man, royalty sound. This morning when I was picking out my tie, I have a tie with an English lion on it. If it had a Scottish lion on it, I would have worn it. It's uh, the Scottish lion is up on his back legs with his paws up fighting. The English lion is on three with a paw up. But I just, I like a lion in full battle regalia. And John hears that, yeah, the lion. You know, you could imagine his excitement. He turns around and it's a lamb slain. I, I hope you catch that juxtaposition of who Jesus is recorded in those verses. He's called the lion even when he looks like a wounded lamb. Later in Revelation, he comes on the white horse in full display. In the first chapter, you see him in full display uh, to John. But in this chapter, we see Jesus beginning the end. He is the one who comes off the throne, takes the scroll, and begins opening it. And 
the end starts to happen. And as you look at the end of this chapter, and there's a lot of worship and praise. This is a great chapter to go to. If you want to pray and worship God, you can use the things said here because this is the worship service in heaven. Right? You following me? So it doesn't matter what you think of or what I think of. This is what God thought of. This is what he, he liked. And uh, in verse 11, I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. Let me give you some application of that before I go to the next verse. What do Jehovah Witnesses believe about God? Anybody tell me? About the Trinity, let's say. Right, they don't believe in the Trinity. Who is God to them? Only... Only Jehovah. To them is blasphemous for us to say that Jesus is Jehovah. That Jesus is God. So, do you remember what happened to King Herod in the book of Acts? When he made a speech and everybody, where they were just being, um, buttering him up by saying, it's the voice of a God, not of a a man. Y'all remember that story? What happened to Herod? Yeah, he fell over dead and the worms ate him, right? So I have allowed Jehovah Witnesses to come into my home, and then I ask them, is Jesus Jehovah? And well, you know, and they, they'll dance around that. They don't want to answer that question because they know you're a Christian and they don't want to say it plainly out loud. But you, you say, listen, even if, and if they won't say it, you just finally say, look, that's what your church teaches. Do you believe it or not? And then you open your Bibles to, Rome, to Revelation 4 and 5. And you say, if God would kill Herod in the book of Acts, you'd look that up and show it to him, that he claimed to be God, or he allowed people to worship him as God, and God killed him. And we see heaven worshiping Jesus as God, and nothing happens to him. Yeah, except more worship. So therefore, Jesus is God, right? But notice in these verses, I, I was just a side like to help you with the JWs when they come to your house. Hadn't seen one up here yet, so I, I don't know. I, I know they're here. I saw the place where they meet, I think. But, but notice, worthy is the lamb. He's going to receive all of these things. Power, uh, uh, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. And what this is ushering in is the final battles where Jesus is going to come in chapter 19 as the conquering king on the horse, the thing they were looking for in Acts 1. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? No. I don't even know when that's going to happen. The Father has held that knowledge to himself. Now, does Jesus know it now? Probably. But he had not yet ascended to his Father and yet been fully glorified. So he has not yet been given that knowledge. I think he has it now because he's in heaven. But while he was still on earth, he goes, I don't even know. Only the Father knows that. So, by the way, if you ever hear some preacher tell, tell you he knows when Jesus is coming back, he's a liar and a false prophet. Because even Jesus didn't claim to know it. 
And if Jesus don't know it, I sure don't know it. Amen? Amen. But what this is pointing out is Jesus is going to conquer the whole planet. We get all upset about the third toe, the left foot of the beast or the statue or whatever in Revelation, and we forget the point. The point is Jesus wins. And he's going to rule this planet, this planet that we're on now. We're not going to kill it with pollution. We're not going to kill it with global warming. You know, we're not going to kill it with nukes. A lot of it's going to die. Don't, don't misunderstand me. The Bible, Revelation will tell you, a third of it, fourth of it gets destroyed. But it will be enough of it left. He's going to come back and restore it and we'll live here. And so I, I want you to catch that. So when we're concerned about the world, we're not concerned about the lost. We're concerned about the king. That's how we have to think about missions. We don't go do missions because people are lost. Because I'm, I'm here to tell you, they don't want to hear from you. Because a man without Christ is the enemy of Christ. He does not care about God. He don't want to hear it. You've got to convince him. The Holy Spirit's got to convince him because you can't. And he does not appreciate that you're trying to change his worldview. The loss that you meet, just because they're not wearing a grass skirt and a bone through their nose at your job, does not mean they're not a heathen. And they don't want to hear it either. See, you've you got to not look with the eyes of flesh, look with the eyes of faith. So I don't care if it's somebody in the bush in Africa or Arian Jaya or uh, uh, in the, uh, the rainforest of Brazil or wearing a business suit on Manhattan in Manhattan. Without Christ, you're the enemy of Christ and you don't want to hear it. So I don't care where any of us are witnessing either what we call a missionary or at home. The point is not them, even though we want to see them saved. We are obeying the command of the king to go tell them. Right? So our concern for the world is his concern for the world. Our job is to conquer the world with the gospel, not with the sword, but with the the sword of the spirit, the word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, to bring the world in subjection to Christ. And so, Revelation 8, 3 through 5 And another angel came and stood at the altar with a, gold and a, uh, with a golden censer and was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it out on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And this is pointing out that in the tribulation, we're in it by chapter 8. There are Christians praying and their prayers are being offered to God. And we, we do get a glimpse uh, in Revelation um, where the, the martyrs are under, the, under the, uh, the mercy seat in heaven. And they're crying out to God, how long, O Lord? By the way, you think you don't know time is passing in eternity? They are living in eternity saying, how long? We are aware of the passing of time in heaven and eternity. However, it doesn't matter to us. You know, it'll be a great thing. But my point here, and you see this point, is those prayers are being offered for Christ to come back and to rule. These saints are praying to God, and God is hearing their prayer even in this tribulation. Go all the way back to Genesis in chapter 18. Genesis 18. 
in verse 22, and it actually goes, uh, well, let's do that. This goes all the way through 1927-29. We're not going to read all of it. But let's just read the opening verse and then you'll remember what happened. And the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Y'all remember what happened here? Abraham, I'm going to get up here just for a second. Abraham is camped out under the oaks at Mamre. This is kind of where his headquarters were. And one night three guys walk up. Y'all remember this story? So he goes, hey, we got company, kill lamb, let's cook it up. Sarah's in the tent cooking, they eat, and he's sitting there, and Abraham is talking to them, and they, he gets told Sarah's going to have a son. And Sarah laughs, he laughs, so they named their son Laughter. And that was Jesus. Any appearance of God in the Old Testament is Jesus. God is a spirit, it says in Hebrew, cannot be seen by any man. So anytime we see, can see God, it's Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit, and He's like the wind. You see the effect, don't see Him. But Jesus we could see, it says in Hebrews, but in these last days spoken by His Son, who's the express image of His glory, John 1, and we be, He put on flesh so that we could see Him, and we beheld His glory. Glories are the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, right? So this is Jesus and two angels, probably Gabriel and Michael. I don't know, the Bible doesn't name them, but... I think it's Gabriel and Michael, which that and 250 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. So doesn't matter what I think. But those two go on to Sodom and Gomorrah. The two angels go on to cast judgment. And what happens after that? What does Abraham start doing talking to Christ? Starts bargaining with him. Now, why were Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Nope, they were destroyed because they couldn't find 10 righteous people. If God wanted to destroy Stanton, could he find ten righteous people? Yeah, they were sinning. I, I get that. And because of that horrible sin, the stink of it rose up to God. That's what he says. And I'm, I'm not saying that's the wrong answer. But I, I want to point out that the judgment was because there weren't righteous people there. And we can only do something about that. Peter said, if judgment is to come, must come to the house of God. This is where it starts. And if we're not praying, if we're not seeking God's kingdom, his kingdom come, if we're not trying to win the world to Christ, is that a worse sin than what Sodom and Gomorrah was doing? I, I'm not saying it is or it isn't. Yeah. We allow a little sin in and it's going it's to grow. So, so th- there's this debate. And we, what we are seeing there, because it's in person, we don't think about it. Well, let me ask it this way. Do you think this, that those who have died and gone on before us, the saints that are in heaven, can pray? That, that's not a trick question. Can they? Well, of course they can pray. Prayer is talking to God. They are in the presence of God. can see Jesus there. They're in the presence. They, they know Whatever you can know that that's God, they know it. There's God, there's Jesus. I mean, John said, I heard a voice turn, there's one on the throne, there's the the Lamb, the river of life, which is the Holy Spirit. He saw the Trinity in heaven, right? Okay, Just, just keeping us all honest. 
So just because Abraham's talking to God in person doesn't mean it ain't praying. It's prayer. We have that same privilege to go to God and say, don't destroy Stanton. We want to make sure we get more righteous people here. You get that? And then we come to 1927 to 29. You go through a whole lot. I mean, yeah, 19. Sorry, I confused myself. And verse 27 through 29. And Abraham went early in the morning at the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God will save the righteous, but he won't save everybody unless we're doing what God called us to do. And then I put this in your sheet. Lot never knew about that conversation Abraham had with God. So what good does it do for you to pray once Justin and Rachel leave and go to Senegal? What good does it do for you to pray for people to be saved under their ministry there? Yeah, it does a great good because God hears it. Just because you haven't seen and they'll never know your name. The people that Justin leads to the Lord will never know your name. But when you get to heaven, God goes, that guy prayed for you and he didn't know it and you didn't know it. So it is worth a lot to pray for the lost of the world. They'll never know we pray for them. But does God hear that prayer? Absolutely. God listened to the prayer of Abraham and said, if I can find 10, I won't destroy them. And he couldn't find 10. He got down to 10. Look in Romans 9. And by the way, I said something earlier. I want to say you should have a burden for the lost. And you should be praying for the lost. You should be witnessing to the lost. I'm just saying our motivation is to honor God. But verse 11 of Romans 9. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Nor that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. And as is written, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. Esau not yet even rejected God. And yet, this evil is going to befall him. We have to be in prayer for those who are outside of God. I, I have a poster and I've never put it up. And I, I was showing it. I showed it to Katie that day. She's going to figure out a way to put it in a frame and hang it. Out there, and it's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said this If the lost be damned, at least let us make them jump over our bodies on their way to hell. Let's stand between the lost and hell and pray and plead with them and with God that they not go there. In, in, the, in Revelation, which we won't go back to it, the beast is a military image, and the, the harlot. Is the secular culture. We are praying. When we're praying. When those saints in Revelation are praying. They are under military oppression. But they're also under a, 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 a secular cultural oppression. And we are seeing that become more and more and more evident. Even in our world. America has been, been in a sense. Especially 
the Christian culture, and especially in the southeast uh, and, the, and the eastern side of America, we've kind of been insulated spiritually from the reality of the rest of the world, how lost they are. But we are also kind of blind to that because there are more lost people in the state of Alabama than, than in many countries where we send missionaries. We got a ton of lost people in America. Don't, don't misunderstand that. And I wrote, or I, yeah, I wrote this down. Somebody else was saying this over 35 years ago. And how much more true it is for me today that our secular culture doesn't even know God. Are we praying that they might know God? And so you cannot go to war without prayer. And you got to pray generally. You know, we, we don't want to just pray, Lord, save all the lost people in the world. But you need to do a little bit of that, you know. I mean, I don't know how else to do it. By the way, I should have written down these, these things. There's a book. And it's probably an online resource now. I just don't have it online. In fact, I'm pretty sure it is. But just write down the words on your piece of paper. Operation World, W-O-R-L-D. And then look that up, Google it or something. If you have to go find a paperback, you can probably look on Amazon. They republish that, I think, about every year, but every couple of years at least. And it is a daily time you can pray for the nations of the world. It'll tell you how many, what the percentage of people in that nation are saved, lost, what religions are there, and what percentage of the population claim those religions, tell you about the people, um, how they live, what they do. And if you seriously want to pray for the nations, you can either get that book or probably get it online, and you can pray for a different nation each day or a people group in those nations. And there are other projects like that. You just probably type in a Google search or, or whatever search engine, um, Prayer for the nations of the world, and you'll probably get a ton of resources, and maybe you ought to want to do that. But then you ought to pray specifically. You know a missionary? Pray for them. Pray specifically for people you know that need to be saved. Um, we're going to do this um, uh, starting next week. We're going to do the, a witnessing class, and I promise you it's a very simple outline, and we, we'll do that. But along with that, we're gonna, I'm going to have some kind of card or something where you can write down some names. I'm going I'm to expect you to start praying for those names and share what we learn with those people and continue to pray for them ongoing. Um, go ahead and put up that chart. There, there should be a chart. And this is just a um, major levels of prayer. Um, zero is, of course, no prayer at all. Can y'all see that? Because I can't see it on the back wall. Not very well. You, you can see it good enough. If you can dim those lights any, it's fine. Um, there is an introductory prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take, okay? Praying for our meals. There's an introductory kind of prayer. Praying, God bless mom and dad. We got to do this, you know. But then there becomes an initiation into deeper praying where we begin to realize that there are, there are, uh, there's more to prayer than just repeated phrases and things. So we get to a level of imitation. We start hearing other people pray and we begin to imitate them in their prayers and, or, or even imitating prayers out of the Bible, which is a good thing to do. The next level is when we get to intercession. And that is taking someone else's needs before the throne. And that's a little bit what we're talking about tonight. A little bit, because we want to go on from there. Then there's investigation. Now, investigation, I mean that you're seeking to know everything about somebody, but you're asking God. My wife prayed as our kids were little. 
that if they did anything wrong at school, that they'd get caught. She also prayed that for her husband. That's investigation prayer. <laughs> hey, God, I'm concerned about them. I don't even know what they're up to. But you take, I'm asking you to take the Holy Spirit and get down in their heart and reveal to them what their need is. So you're interceding, God help them, but now you're, God, get, get, get them. <laughs> in a sense, spiritually, not hurt them, but get them, bring them to you. And then there's invasion praying. And that's when we walk over into Satan's territory. And in Jude 20, and we snatch them out of the fire. We do all of this in prayer. The physical of going out and doing something is just that. It's just the physical. The work is done in prayer. So are we invading the nations of the world in prayer? Okay. Right. She is asking, how do we teach the fifth and sixth levels, especially to our kids? And that just in general, we would guess most Christians stay at one or two, maybe three, um, uh, uh, their whole lives. Um, and so I'm, I've repeated that so it'd be on the tape. And then I will ask you this question, how did Jesus do it? How did he teach the disciples that kind of praying? Yeah, yeah, I knew you'd know that answer. He prayed in front of them. He prayed in the garden, said, wake up, listen to what I'm saying. You need to be praying too. Lord, is there any way, he's, he's, about, to, he's about to really go into enemy, he's, he's jumping into enemy, behind enemy lines to do battle with the devil. And he said, you're going to fail if you don't pray with me. And they all did, because they didn't pray. And he was, Lord, is there any way, let's cut back, but not my will, yours be done. And then, Lord, should I pray? He says, he says in John 7, should I be prayed to deliver from this hour? It is for this hour I've come into the world. Now I'm going to invade his territory and I'm going to whoop him. And I need your help to get that done. That's what he's saying. I'm, I'm you know, southernizing it, paraphrasing that. But that's basically what Jesus is praying. I'm going to do it, but I can't do it without you. And the Bible says in Hebrews, who through the Spirit offered himself. That he took that handwriting warrant, he passed that test, he did that for us. Um, I, I put it in your notes. Satan's not terribly shook up by what the first and second level do because they finally lay down and die. But if you go to, any, to the third level and on with, with, without prayer... You'll be running right behind the sons of Sceva yelling and hurt if you go to the third level without prayer. If you start to, to get involved in people's lives and getting into their, to their business, invading the kingdom and robbing the kingdom. Y'all know the sons of Sceva? I, I, it cracks me up every time I read that story. It's seven brothers. There's a demon-possessed guy. They've been watching the Christians cast out demons. And so they thought they'd try it. Because there were a lot of guys back in those days... 
who cast out demons and they would use different methods. So these seven brothers of one man named Sceva, they go into this house and they, this demon-possessed guy, and they said, we adjure you by Christ whom Paul preaches to come out of that man. And the demons said, plural, or demons said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? <laughs> and then it says the man jumped on the seven men and the, the seven men ran out of the house naked and wounded. He cut them up, beat them up, ripped off their clothes, and they got out of that house one by one. He whipped seven of them at once because demons give superhuman strength to people. And if we want to go outside these walls and begin to minister to people who are in the darkest needs and we do it without prayer, Pastor Burchett said, you'll be running right behind the sons of Sceva yelling and hurt if we get past level two without prayer. So we need to, to go to those levels of, it, it's really prayer and the Christian life. As we do that, we, we better do it in prayer because it's a work of God. We can't do it. Yes, sir, Brother Larry. Is the Lord's Prayer an example of imitation? Yes, it, it, it was given as an example to us as an outline of how we could pray. And in fact, I'm sure you caught that in my opening prayer, I was imitating that prayer. I, I didn't use the exact Bible words, but I was giving those elements. God is our Father. He is holy. His kingdom is going to come. We depend on Him for our needs. And, you know, He delivers us from evil. And it's all about Him. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the glory. Now and forever. And we agree with that. So everything we do is, is that way. So, and, and by the way, nothing wrong with any of those levels. That's fine. You know, wherever you are, that's fine. But we want to seek to, to advance not only in prayer but also in how we operate. And as I said, that's also what we do in the Christian life where as we begin, we're just introduced. And, um, and, and then uh, we are initiated into Christianity. We begin to imitate other Christians. Uh, we intercede for people. That is definite prayer. Investigation. That's when, man, that doesn't look right. And you go and try to help somebody. But you invade Satan's kingdom and he is not going to lay down and let that just happen. And Jesus lived his life doing that. So when we talk about concern for the world, we are really talking about bringing the nations into uh, the knowledge of, of Christ. And that's a tough thing. Look, look at Luke 10. That is all about spiritual warfare. And we're not going to read verses, but it's all about spiritual warfare and doing the Father's will. Every story in there is about spiritual warfare. He sends out the 72. He tells them how to go. He declares a, a, a woe unto some cities. Then the 72 return, and they're all excited about uh, what they saw. And, uh, and that's worth reading. Uh, well, it's all worth reading, but... Uh, verse 18 says, I saw Jesus speaking, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice your names are written in heaven. I don't know if you were here this morning, but I mentioned Sintiki uh, and, and Euodia, I think I say their name correctly. And he says, help them because they, they have worked with me in ministry. 
And theirs and all, all that whose names are written in the book of life. Did you catch that? I just read over it and mentioned it this morning. Paul mentions that when he says, y'all need to get that together because we are all co-workers together and all our names are in the book of life. And so, Paul prayed for me in Philippians because my name's written in the book of life. He said, and all those whose names are written in the book of life. He prayed for all of us. Pretty cool, huh? But anyway, so Paul's prayed for me. I just think that's a neat thing. I'm going to have a button made that said, Apostle Paul prayed for me. No, I'm not, but just trying to get y'all to pay attention. All right. But look at Luke 11, 20 to 23. We're going to read those verses. I just tell you that about Luke 10. I want you to go home and read it. Because then he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. This guy invaded that other guy's life. He was beat up. He shouldn't have done that. And, and what they're asking Jesus is, well, who's my neighbor? He's saying, everybody's your neighbor. Even your enemy's your neighbor. And, and he uses it as the guy who should hate the guy that got beat up. Loves the guy that gets beat up. And notice what Jesus does. He doesn't say the Jewish guy helped the Samaritan guy. Because I go, yeah, because that's, that's how we are. Yeah, we're good guys. He had the guy that they thought was horrible and hateful to, to rescue a Jewish guy. Making them really see the picture. I, well, I won't, I won't go any further than that. And then Mary and Martha. And this is where he says she has chosen the good thing. That won't be taken away from her. She worships Christ. And so we, all of Luke 10, we see this spiritual warfare, this, this attitude of worship. And then we get into Luke 11, and that's where he gives us the outline of prayer. Um, and, uh, and then he gives us also the story of the one going to, at midnight to, to uh, get bread. We talked about that. Then he talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. A kingdom divided itself is laid waste, it says in verse uh, 17. And a divided household falls, and if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, but if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they'll be your judges. But if it's by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And then he says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace... His goods are safe. And look at verse 22. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. In verse 20, we see an authority there. It is the finger of God that I cast out demons. So our spiritual work is done not by our authority, but by, by the authority of God. He calls us to do it. In verse 21, sometimes I think people miss this. The strong man is the devil. You know, when I first perusingly read these verses as a young man, I missed that. He's talking about the strong man's the devil. So here is our method of going and stealing souls from the devil. We're going to start doing it next week. Let me, let me teach you how to start a conversation. And then you go to Romans 3.23. All of a sudden comes short of the glory. So I give her a method to talk to people. And she goes and talks to people with that method. And, this, and you left the strong man untied. And he still rules and reigns in that person's life. 
If you know who you go, we pray for, we go out. And if I don't even know who I'm going to see, Lord, whoever I talk to tonight, right now, I bind, I'm asking you to rebuke the devil for us. And we bind the demons in the name of Jesus. Because if you don't bind the strong man, how are you going to steal from him? That's what he's saying here. So in verse 23, we, or 22, we see Jesus. In 20, we see authority. In 21, we see Satan. But in 22, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That's Jesus. He's the stronger one. In verse 23, ask this question, where are you? Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Say, well, I'm on Jesus' side, okay? When's the last time you bound the strong man and stole from him? So you're not gathering with him. I'm I'm not pointing fingers. I'll point them all at me. So if you're not gathering in from Satan's, what he has taken possession of that is not his by right, he just took it, and you're letting him keep it, and you're not buying him and stealing it back to God, then you're not gathering with God. You either are gathering or you're scattering. That's what he said in verse 23, right? He that does not gather with me scatters. I'm just telling you, we like to read the Bible devotionally, but when we read it critically, it'll scare you, right? So I, I, I want, I, I'm not fussing at anybody. Trust me, I'm not. But those verses throw fear into my heart. What we have tried to do is train people in cat burglary. We want Christian ninjas. We don't train people how to tie up the enemy. I put that in there. John six thirty seven. I went ahead in this last one and just put in some of Pastor Burchett's quotes and put them in quotation marks and gave him credit. John six thirty seven. is an encouraging verse to us as we go out. Sorry, my eyes are giving me a fit tonight. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. How many that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son? All of them. So I don't quite understand that verse. All right. So I take my kids fishing, and my kid is, you know, hooking my ear and the tree branches and everything else. So I say, okay, here, hold the paddle. You paddle us around. So now we're really getting messed. But I take his rod and reel or his fishing pole, whatever I got, and I throw it out there because I know where to put it, and I know how to do it, and get a fish. Mm. I get that fish on there, and I reel it up, get it good and tight, kind of let it off a little bit. And I said, okay, let me paddle, and you fish. And I hand him the rod. And he gets that rod and he rolls it and he goes, Daddy, Daddy, I got to reel it, son, reel it, get it in here. And he reels that, Daddy, look what I caught. He comes up, Mommy, Mommy, look what I caught. Really? <laughs> Who caught that fish? Daddy caught that fish. But he gave his son the joy of reeling it into the boat. Everyone who comes to me, I'll get them. <laughs> They're going to come. So when we go out of here, see, we go with confidence. There's some fish on a line, and God wants to hand us the fishing pole. That's it. And I don't know who those are until I start talking to them, and I'm praying, bind the straw man, help me find them. And 
listen, there, there, I, I, I know stories. I, this is rarely happening to me. Where Pastor Burchett told one. I'll just tell you that one. There was a, a he just decided the mayor of their little town had done something and he'd gotten criticized for it, but he had literally led his church in prayer for the elected officials. So he said, I'm going to go talk to the mayor. So he goes, makes an appointment, goes in the neighbor's, uh, the mayor's office. He said, the car, he said, it felt like the carpet was that, you know, thick. It was really nice, you know, more than he was used to. And he goes in and he says to the mayor, my name is Harold Burchett. I'm pastor of this church down here. And I came to tell you that we have prayed for you. Our church prays for you. We appreciate how you lead us. And I wanted to let you know that God's people are lifting you up in prayer. And he said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. And the mayor asked him this question. If a man wanted to get rid of his sin, don't you think God would send somebody to tell him how? He said, I'm Catholic. Pastor Chet lived in, in uh, Rhode Island, 98% Catholic. He said, I've asked the priest of my church, how does one get rid of his sin? And they can't answer me. He said, and he said, the man started crying. He said, don't you think God would send somebody to tell me? Well, guess who became a member of Quidnesset Baptist Church? <laughs> the mayor, because he told him. And that won't happen to you unless you go, unless you start talking, unless you pray and you intentionally go out. Romans 10.1, Paul says in Romans 10.1, I would wish myself accursed for the sake of my brethren in the flesh, the Jewish people, that they would come to. So, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own. They do not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you care enough about the lost to pray for them? And we're always trying to come up, uh, I put the quote in there, with some new and novel way. I, I spent a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of study in, in, to do the job that I'm doing. So let me save you a lot of money and a lot of time. Do you know what churches in the world and in North America are actually growing? Those who are telling people about Jesus. That's it. And you know how you tell people about Jesus? You tell people about Jesus. There's no new trick to doing that. We try to, we, we, we get culturally sensitive. We do things in a way that people can listen and, and we can do that. But the bottom line is you're letting them know there is a savior. There's someone who can meet that deepest need of our heart and our life. And so praying to pray for the lost is found all through the scripture. I should have put is found, but is all through scriptures. 1 Peter 4, 7, we ought to be serious about our praying for the lost. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, I should have been able to just uh, quote it, but in the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Discipline yourself. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of praying. Psalm 149, don't be harsh or hollow. You've got to have praise and warfare. I love Psalm 149, and, and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you why. I love Psalm 150 as well for the same reason. Because uh, it, it, as when I was younger, 
you know, when I was a little kid, you had two instruments in church, right? What were they? Yeah, and, and of course, that's all God intended us to have, right? That, that was the attitude of some people that, that, you know, maybe that was the only instruments, and, and yet neither one are in the Bible. I said that in one church, and a lady came and said, organs are in the Bible, because it says the word organ in the King James. I said, that was a bagpipe, so you, you want me to get a bagpiper in here? Because it was just translated organ, because they didn't know what else to call it at the time, but it was actually a bagpipe. Uh, bagpipes came from, from uh, the Middle East, not from Scotland. They just got put to Scotland, and they started playing them up there. Psalm 149, look at verse, well, it, it says, and, and so I like 149, 150, because it talks about all these different instruments and ways of praising the Lord. Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. And by the way, we are spiritual Israel. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. What? Oh, Baptist, we got to take that verse out. Making melody to him with tambourine and lyre, which is a type of a harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Verse 6. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands. We're to be praising God and attacking the enemy at the same time. To execute vengeance on the nations. And punishment on the people. Do we ex? No, we don't do that. God will do that. God judges rightly. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Psalm 149 is, is a, it, we can't be harsh or hollow. We've got to be praising God and going with the word of God to conquer the nations. In 1 John 3, 8, listen to what it actually says. I've got a lot of verses in this because, and, and in fact, I read some more just, you, you almost can't turn to a page in the Bible, you can't find a verse about us praying and praying for the nations. But 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. The, Jesus did not appear so we could have church on Sunday morning. He appeared so we could destroy the work of the devil. Again, I'm just trying to get you to see this mindset. John 12, 31. Time is, is ticking. I'm... I'm I keep looking down and thinking, maybe I could skip that. And I can't skip any of it. John 12, 31. It's now the time, now is the time to drive out the devil. Look at verse 31. Oh, now is the judgment of the world, uh, of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus said that. That happened in Jesus uh, on the cross in his resurrection. We're 2,000 years later. It's the time. We, what does the shield of faith do in, in Ephesians 6? We just preached through it. Y'all don't remember? What does the shield of faith do? It quenches all the fiery darts of the wicked. So we can destroy the works of the devil. We've got the tool. So what is faith? It is trusting in the promise that God gave us, right? What promise did God gave us? All those who come to me, I'll in no wise cast out any of them. So what is our job? To tell them that they can come to Jesus. 
And those will come and he'll take them in and we'll see people saved. And we'll destroy the works of the devil in their life. Right? I know, it, it makes such common sense. I don't know how we miss it. So we've got to claim it, but we've got to claim it daily in every area. <laughs> Satan, you can't have this. Your works are destroyed. They're destroyed in my life. They're destroyed in my family's life. They're destroyed in my church's life. They're destroyed in this, this city. We're going to destroy you. Not we, but Jesus is going to destroy you in, in what he does. So we have to have communion and fellowship with God. In Psalm 25, 14, to know God is to know his secrets. <laughs> Everybody wants to know secrets, don't they? Just, just tell me. I won't tell anybody. If you're that curious, I don't trust you. <laughs> Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. If you fear God, he will reveal himself to you. Psalm 27, 4. A great verse. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will, seek, I, will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire at his temple. Is the one thing that you want in your life is to know God, dwell in his temple and inquire from him about what he wants and what we ought to be doing, how we ought to order our life. Psalm 33, there's only one hope. I wrote it in the notes. There is no plan B. Psalm 33, 20 to 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Say, well, I don't understand how you got that out of that. Did you see anything he said, and if that doesn't work, we can do this? No, he said, we trust in you. You're it. God said, I've got plan A, and if plan A fails, I'm going to fall back on plan A. I don't think... Here's what's happened in our thinking. For a long time, preachers have said about creation. Well, there was God, and he was lonely, and he needed fellowship, or wanted fellowship, so he made man to have fellowship with man. He wasn't lonely. He didn't need anything. He didn't need squat. He did that just because he wanted to show his love to us. That's what the Bible says. He created us just because he loves us and wanted to show us love. And he didn't have to do it. And before he created us, Jesus was already the lamb slain, knew that he would come and die for us. That's how great the love of the Father is to us and the love of Jesus to us. So we say that. We say things like, well, you know, he tried with Adam. Adam messed up. So he said, okay, let me, let me send a flood and start all over Noah. Then Noah messed up. He said, okay, well, let me try the Jewish people. So he created the Jews and the Jews messed up. And he said, okay, well, let's try the church and see if that works. No, from beginning to the end of time, there's one plan. And it all works together. It's not that God kept getting failing and coming up with a new idea. He knew this from the begin, from before he created anything. It was already planned out. In Luke 18, man, it's a good, good, good passage. Luke 18, down in verses 7 and 8. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Before we talk about those verses, look at verse 1 of that chapter. And he told them a parable to the effect 
that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. If you get King James, it says faint. Faint means to give up or quit, lose heart. Notice what it says there. If you're not praying, you're fainting. You're losing heart. And so you ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Then he tells a story of a woman who had been cheated. She goes to the judge, a widow, and she says, Give me justice against my adversary. And, and while he refused, but afterward he said, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice. So she will not beat me down by her continually coming. So the woman just kept after him, would not let go of it. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? If an unrighteous judge will give justice to a widow just because she's bugging him, if we don't quit praying, Jesus has te- he said in verse 1, I'm going to tell you this so you won't quit praying. The Father wants us to bug him. About winning the loss to Christ. I tell you he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless when the son of man comes. And then there's the great question. Will he find faith on the earth? Faith is the deliberate act of a well fed will. When you feed your will with the word of God. I will follow God. I will know God. I will. Then faith is the results of that. That I trust him. To not act according to what God said is a lack of trust in the Father. You ever, you ever played that trust game where you fall backwards and somebody catches you? Um, my sister's here tonight and I appreciate her being here. And I was always afraid of the water. And I didn't want my face underwater. I'm claustrophobic. That's part of the problem. And the little kid across the street, they got a little wading pools about, I don't know, 18 inches deep. And I was a little kid, and I'd go there and play in that pool, and I, because nobody's bugging me, nobody's going, just do it, you can do it. I eventually got where I could put my face under the water, and I could do some stuff. So I never learned to swim. My sister had taken swimming lessons back in the day. So we're on family vacation, we're at this pool, and I'm kind of learning to paddle back and forth. And I said, hey, Ruth Ellen, her name's Ruth now, but I called her Ruth Ellen. I said, uh, Ruth Ellen, I'm going to jump in over here, and if I don't come in, up, you come in and get me, okay? She probably doesn't remember this. and said, okay, I won't even tell you how old I was then. So I jumped in, and guess what? I came up, could swim. Oh, great. So I could save myself. I'm not, I still don't want to get in that deep water very long, but I can save myself. But here's my point. I was trusting her to save me if I couldn't get out because she had taken lessons. She knew how to swim. I, my brother-in-law is also here, and he, was, he used to go with us on family vacations at times. And one time I got away from the edge of the pool and I couldn't get up. You remember that? And, and so I would just go to the bottom. I didn't know that they'd make the seals do this, but I'd go to the bottom and I'd kick up and come up, get an air. And I was kind of bobbing up and down, getting back to the edge. And as I'm coming up, I'm looking through the water and I just see Frank coming over this edge it, like Superman. And what I didn't know, because I was underwater, I couldn't hear it. My mom was screaming, oh no, Stuart's drowning. Go save him, Frank. And so Frank <laughs> jumped in. He got you. I said, I'm okay, I'm okay. But he pulled me to the side because he, he wanted to kiss for my sister or something. I don't know. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's true. So, but, but here's the deal. God will, do we trust God to rescue us if we jump in the deep end? That, that's my only point. I, I'm trying to make it a little humorous. But don't give up. Giving up is a mark of the end time. Giving up is that we just quit. We, we, we look at the situation in the world and we say, 
we can't do it. Well, you never could do it. <laughs> but God can do anything. <laughs> so, this won't be in a lot of detail. I, I just made a topic. Here's some encouragement from Dr. Burchett. These are some things that he said that I just thought would help you. When you quit praying, you quit everything. There's no Christ, there is no Christian life without prayer. There are precious few who will kneel in prayer and get up in power. And we must be a company of committed conduits. Anybody ever water their plants with a hose or wash their car with a hose? Anybody ever used a hose? Some of y'all aren't ready yet. Some of y'all have never used a hose. I am shocked. Okay, it's this long piece of, of rubber and it's hollow and you screw one into a faucet and you turn it on and water comes out the other end. Okay? And in, in Charleston, we call that rubber hose pipe. Okay? So anyway, so you got this hose and water flows through it. You know what will stop the water from flowing through it? You can kink it. You can clog it with something solid. And it gets blocked, and the water can't get through. What blocks prayer? We covered this earlier. Sin, doubt, fear, and all of a sudden it can't get through. But when we become a committed conduit, we are going to be a... It sounds weird to say it now. We're going to be a hose pipe for God because we can't produce water, but we can be a vessel through which water can travel. So let's turn it to a pneumatic hose. The Holy Spirit can blow through our lives into the lives of others, right? Unless we kink the hose, unless we block it with something. And so we need, that's what he meant. There's a lot more to that. We need to be a company of committed conduits. We need to be a conduit from God to lost people. That is our job. That's what we're doing. We take God's grace and we let it flow through us in other people's lives. And that's why ministry is so important. And all of these verses, every one of them, is, is about that. And, uh, well, we got, we got a few minutes. I, I can get through it because, um, well, we can do it. Psalm 57 and verse 2. I'm going to jump in and read it. And for those of you who might not know, I'm reading them out loud for the sake of the recording or I'd get everybody else to do it for me. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Do you really have faith that God is going to do his purpose in your life? I talked about that this morning. Be where you are. Go where God sends you, but then be where you are. And if wherever you are is where God wants you to be at this moment. Now, tomorrow he may call you to go somewhere else, but right now this is where you are, so be here. And, and do you really believe that if you cry out to God, he'll fulfill his purpose in your life? Well, I, I, I hope you would say, well, of course I do. Psalm 63 and verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Do you cling to God knowing that his right hand is holding you? I, I don't know if you ever had one of these children. My oldest child, she was pretty lightweight when she was little. And she has a little girl that's pretty lightweight. And, and I can remember Savannah doing it and Annabelle has done it. And you pick them up and they wrap their arms around your neck and they get their little legs as far around your waist as they can. And you can let go of them and they're still hanging on. <laughs> you know, well here, did you get the picture there in Psalm? I cling to you and your hand upholds me. He's holding us as we cling to him. Just like that baby and, and we're holding on to them. Psalm 71 
verses 3 and 4. Most of these are just encouragement to not quit praying and to hang in there. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You've given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. In Psalm 68, 28, let me back up, past that one. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Let me pause right here. Do you you get the, the, the sense of these verses? It's that we don't pray this way. We may say, oh, God bless me or whatever. The, the psalmist is saying, God, the power that you have saved me by, the power that you created the world by, summon up that power and deliver us and give us your will and make the things happen you have for us. Do we sincerely ask God to, to do those mighty, mighty, mighty things? Psalm 138, 3. As the little old saying goes, and you've heard me repeat it many times, we pray for me and my wife, my son John, and his wife, us four no more. And that's what we do in our prayer, prayers. Psalm 138.3, on the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. The moment you pray, God's answered. You, you know why? In other places in the scripture, and I, I'm not even sure if I'm going to read them, I don't think I am. He said, I knew what you needed before you asked it. The answer was already on the way before, before you even prayed. Did you understand that? That God already knows what you need and it's, it's on the way. But you won't see it if you don't pray. Acts 10.1. There is a man. Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius, a centurion, what is known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave arms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And what did God do? What did God do to Cornelius or for Cornelius? Sent Peter to give him the gospel. Do you think that if a man wanted to know how to get rid of his sin, God would send someone to him to tell him? There was a lost mayor in an office praying that God would send him someone to tell him how to get rid of his sin. They're out there, folks. Colossians 1. Oh, I love the book of Colossians 2. I love all of them. They're all good. Colossians 1, verses 9 to 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. I don't think Paul ever lied, personally. I mean, not much. He's not Jesus. He probably said something that wasn't quite true, but... He said, when he said, I didn't cease to pray for you, I believe he didn't cease to pray for them. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul's prayer was that they would be strengthened, they would be empowered, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, and that they would walk in a manner worthy of doing God's will. Do we pray for each other that way? And then I'm going to go all the way back to Psalm 122. Psalm 122, 1 through 9. 
I was glad when they said to me, let us go in the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, for thrones for the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions sake I will say peace be within you for the sake of the house of the Lord our God I will seek your good do you seek the good of the kingdom of God that's what you're getting out of that song are you praying that Christians would be effective in sharing their faith and in living a Christian life do you pray that God's kingdom be advanced it's not about Calvary Baptist Church it's not about any denomination it's about the kingdom of God advancing no matter the worldly label we put on it and so here's a question that Dr. Burchett asked, and I went in and quoted him. I, I'm just, I'm telling you, uh, I, I wanted to give you a lot of the quotes here at the end. Are you taken up more with the blemishes and wrinkles in the bride's dress than with her beauty? Paul said in the New Testament that Jesus was going to present his bride to the Father without spot or blemish. The work of washing and ironing is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not my job, in a sense. We're supposed to be working toward doing better. I get that. But that's a, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. He convicts us and brings us into a better understanding. But y'all know those people in the church who complain about everything? They're more caught up with the fact that the bride's got a wrinkle in her dress or she spilled something on it than with how beautiful that bride is. And I guarantee you, I, I, actually I could probably tell you something about the dress Janice was wearing when we got married. But I didn't care. I wasn't marrying the dress. I was caught up with her, not with her dress. I didn't go, oh, I'm so glad we're getting married. I just did all of this so I could have her walk down the aisle in that dress. No, I was caught up with her. And if you're in church and you're more concerned with we're not doing that right than you are that we are the bride of Christ and we ought to be praying that God would help us as his bride to produce children for the kingdom. Then you got the wrong focus. And I've got the wrong focus. I, you know, we all do that. Are we supposed to judge ourselves? Yeah, Peter said that. We got to judge ourselves because it's got to start the house of God. We got to figure that out. We got to do better. Paul said in Titus 1, to, to, uh, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order the things that are lacking, ordain elders. There, there's work to be done, and obviously. But are you more caught up with the problem than you are with the beauty? Because once you see the beauty of the bride, this becomes not as big an issue. Because we make issues in the church personal, like, I just can't believe. And all of a sudden it's somebody's fault, or somebody's not doing right, or they're horrible, or this or that. Folks, we're the body of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. And if there's something we all need to see and do, great. But let's pray and ask God to help us together to do that, right? And let him wash and iron us. Look at Paul's ministry as we, as we close. Here's how Paul did it. And back in the book of Colossians again, Colossians 1, verses 24 and 25. Paul says, uh, there he writes... 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul didn't come in and say, you're doing this all wrong and it's horrible. He suffered for them that it would be made right. You know the difference? (laughs) A consultant walks into a business or whatever and tells you everything that's wrong and how to fix it and then he leaves. That's just good advice. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to live together in unity. We're called to live together in peace and love and effort. And Paul says, I suffer to make this happen. Are we willing to suffer for one another? To, to, to see us know and do the will of God. In 1 Corinthians 5, 4. By the way, what is true about the church at Corinth? Does anybody know the big truth about Corinth? Yeah, they, they were the most gifted church and the most sinful church. Knowing your giftedness and operating in your gifts will not make you a better Christian. In fact, in chapter 1, he says, I thank God that you lack none of the gifts. In chapter 2, he says, I got to speak to you as babes, not as mature people. So that may be a shock to some of you. We ought to be emphasizing the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit is just going to happen. We don't have to worry about it. But look in chapter 5 in verse 4. Paul says there, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my Spirit is present with the power of of our Lord Jesus. And then he goes on to tell him how to deal with the sin in the church. Paul is saying, I'm there even when I'm not there. And in the power of the name of the Holy Spirit, deal with this problem. It's a horrible problem. You can read all about it there. But Paul's ministry is to suffer for them, but also to bring that correction in, but do it in a godly and right way. And then Psalm 33 is not about Paul's ministry, but we want to close with this verse and we'll be done. Psalm 33 and verse 9. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. That's the God we get to call daddy. He spoke and it came to be. In fact, we were just talking about this uh, yesterday, I think. Because uh, Janice made a comment, and, and anyway, it was kind of misunderstood. But here, here, here's, here's what I'm saying. Literally, in, in the Hebrew, when we look at creation, in our Bibles it says, and God said, let there be light. If we literally translate the Hebrew language straight into English, this is what it would say. And God said, light be, and it was. Birds be, and they were. Plants be, and all the plants were there. He spoke, and it existed, and it stands firm. We call that creator God, Father. Not only that, we call him Daddy Father. And he's holy, he's separated, he is thrice holy, he's completely holy. And we get to crawl up in his lap. And wrap our arms around him and he holds us. And we talk to him. And he's got the power to speak and it exists. He can do anything. 
Now, do we want to use all of that for us? Or to make sure the nations come under the rulership of Jesus Christ? That's the point we come to in prayer. That is when we start invading the enemy territory and saying, Father, if I don't have a home, if I don't have but one suit of clothes to wear, if I don't have food on my table tomorrow, give me this place for the gospel for Jesus Christ or I die. Until we get to that desperate place, we won't be as effective as God wants us to be. I know that sounds dramatic. I'm making it dramatic because I want you to get how important it is. And as we went through those verses, I know it, I wasn't making as many one-to-ones as it should be. But I want you to see it is for the glory of God that we are trying to win the world of Christ. And that's the verses we've been reading about. How God can do it and it's for his glory and how he's going to bring all that into an expected end. Amen. And so he spoke and it was. And what he did stands firm. So let's continue to do that in his name.